Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Whether you're in Gospel Saving Church today or coming to us online and from SoundCloud or wherever from all over the world, uh, you're pleasing God by what you're doing. For whenever you take time out of your busy day, out of your day when you could do whatever you want and you focus on something God wants you to hear or something that God wants you to know, then that's important. That's super special to Daddy. And so praise God. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time listening to me, hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If you guys would please join me in a word of prayer, I'd surely appreciate it, and uh, ask God to help us understand the Word, because it's only by the Holy Spirit as we understand God's Word. So, Lord, we we come before you, and we thank you, Lord God, for uh, your wonderful, wonderful Word. And we thank you, Lord God, that Gospel Saving Church stands on your word. Lord, we don't go outside your word, Lord God, as this is dangerous. But we thank you, Lord God, for your holy word. It is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path, Lord God, as the psalmist said. And we thank you for it, Lord God. It helps us know the ways and makes us wise in the ways of salvation, even from our youth, Lord God, if we read it from our youth. We pray, Lord God, today that you would open up your holy word for us today and help us understand it, Lord God. We thank you and we love you for it. And we just, we know that your word says that only your Holy Spirit helps us understand your word. And so we just pray right now for divine wisdom to understand and not only to understand it in a mental way, Lord God, but we pray right now, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would help us understand it in the supernatural way way, Lord God, the way that changes us, Lord God. For I pray that none of us would be the same after this sermon as we were before this sermon, Lord. Excuse me. I pray, Lord God, that we would all be changed, whether brought to Christ for the first time or strengthened in Christ, if we're already yours, Lord God, and all by your Holy Spirit helping us understand what you have to say to us today. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you can turn to Acts chapter 4. That's what we're going to be today. We're going to be in verses 5 through 22. But I'm not going to read them or teach them until after my thoughts from last week's message, The Purpose of Miracles. Last week I talked about the purpose of miracles, and I mentioned two. I'm sure that God has more, and not going outside of Scripture, and I'm sure there's even more in Scripture, but just what we focused on from the last couple weeks, we know that there's two. One, God uses miracles to build up His children, to strengthen our faith, to help us with this, this, this difficult and hard and walk that we have, this narrow walk in Christ that we have, for it is a very narrow narrow path. And two, the one we really focused on last week, God trying to get the attention of unbelievers to share the truth of Jesus Christ and salvation and how to attain that salvation, which I spoke of three times last week. And that's that's the second main reason. I, I maybe might even put it first. Now, I've talked about the subject for the last two weeks, and today I believe that God wants me not to talk about that subject anymore, but to talk about what I saw, what, what characteristic I saw that God exhibited within this purpose of miracles. What is this characteristic of God, you say, that we see in God doing all these miracles? Well, it's the revealing characteristic of God's. God is not real big on hiding himself. Scripturally, he has hidden himself at certain times and for certain reasons, but that's just been towards certain type of rebellious Jewish people, and at that only for certain amount of times until he always relented of doing that and hiding himself and coming back and revealing himself to people again. But overall, God is a revealing God, and his word says that he's been that way since the beginning of all creation. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. Isn't that such good news? Isn't that such a wonderful characteristic of God? It's loving and it's kind, and I I could tell you one thing. There's not one evil or bad characteristic of God, of the God of the Bible, that is, in all the Bible. But being skeptical, you say, Pastor Ed, how do we see, how do you say that that God has a revealing characteristic. I I can't see God with my own eyes. Well, I will say you are right. Nobody can see God himself literally today, and only a handful of people have seen him kind of, sort of, throughout history, but never his face. But that's okay because we don't actually really need to see God literally to see that he is real. 
How, you say? That's, how? Show me, Pastor Ed, show me. Well, have you ever seen the exact person or machine that built your car? How about your computer? You, oh, you saw the, com- the person that built your computer, right? What about, what about your cell phone? That's right. You, you've, you've gone and you've seen the actual person that built your cell phone. Well, I bet most of your answers would be no. Maybe your house. You ever seen the person that built your apartment complex or your house? No, you'd say absolutely not. I'm, you know, may I, I know people that have, but I, I, I never have seen that. Well, if, you know, how do you know that there's actually someone or a machine that actually built those things? I mean, you have them, right? But you never saw the person that built them, right? Well, how you know is because you actually have the evidence of those objects in your hand or in your sight or you could touch them, right? And nobody that I've ever met has ever questioned the fact that cars, computers, or cell phones or houses have creators that have made them. Not even one. I even questioned a child on my school bus this week about it. I said, do you have a cell phone? He said, yes, sir. I said, do you think that there's somebody that made that? Well, well, and he thought about it, and I could tell. He really wanted to answer a different way, but he says, well, no, I, yeah, there's somebody that made it. I said, yeah, how do you know? I, I said, because you got it in your hand, right? And he's like, well, well, yeah. So nobody questions that there's a creator of their cell phone or of their house or of their car or of their computer. And so how do we see that God has a revealing characteristic? Well, one of my very favorite sections of Scripture, Romans 1, 18 through 20, look at this. Look at what God says to us here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Oh, what did Paul just say there? That God is manifest in us. How could God be manifested in us? Well, just think about it. Just think about the one characteristic of your eye. Did you know that your eye sees upside down and backwards? That's how your brain gets the images of your eye. Yet, that's not how we see, is it? We see perfectly straight up and everything's right in color. How does that happen? Well, that's a miracle. That's an intricate, absolute, amazing, miraculous thing that the eye does. How about your brain? Your brain is 70% fat. Well, my stomach is a lot more fat than that, and I sure don't think with the fat that's in my stomach, but yet... Every thought in your brain moves you. You don't move unless your brain thinks first. How does 70% of fat make you move in everything you do? It's supernatural. I asked a Buddhist one time at my work. I said, where does thought come from? Oh, it comes from your brain. Didn't even think about it. I said, that's great. I said, but how does the, it's 70% fat. How does that fat make thought? Thought's invisible. You can't see it. You can't, you can't touch it. You can't hear it. It's invisible. But yet, it does everything you did. You, can, you don't do anything without thinking. He hasn't answered me still to this day. Because he's right now, he's in the midst I'm praying for him, but he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I know he is. But, but, because, see, but it's there. The seed is there. Because you can't explain how your brain makes you work. Everything makes you work, and yet you don't... It's impossible. It's, it's a fat makes thought. It does, it's, even when you think about it, it doesn't make sense. Think about it. Get it? So with all, within all these things, Paul said, for God manifested it in us. We can see God even within us. For God has shown it to them. What's he shown? He's shown us, he's shown us these intricate things within ourselves, these supernatural things within ourselves. But then he goes on. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Where can we see those? Let's see. Look out to the heavens. What do you see? I see stars. I see planets. I see the moon. How does all that stuff just hang there? How does all that stuff just, just, right? How does it all just stay there? By, By what? By supernatural some type of power. And you know, we didn't do it. Wherever man goes, we destroy. We didn't put the planets out there. We don't, by our power, make them hang in the sky. So we clearly see God's invisible attributes in the things that are made. And since we didn't make them, we know that there has to be some divine, wonderful, creator, intelligent God that put it all 
there. God has revealed himself in mankind's complexities and in all of creation, period, the end. And to everyone, he's revealed it. And there are no exceptions. And Paul goes on to say, being understood by the things that are made. We understand these things, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without excuse. No one has an excuse. Everybody knows that there is a creator, an intelligent being that's out there because we did not put it there ourselves. It's way bigger than us. God is so great. And as I said, one of his greatest characteristics is that he is a revealing God, an awesome revealing God. Now, who is he? Well, the Bible says if you take that little bit of knowledge to know that there is a creator God and you seek God, just God, a, the all-powerful being, that God can reveal himself to you personally. Because I know that's the journey I went on 17 years ago. And of course, I found that one God to be Jesus Christ and no other. And we're going to look at that in scripture today. Anyway, sorry to go on such a rant on this subject, but it's near and dear to my heart. It really is. Uh, but we have to get on to our sermon, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's move forward. Our title of our message today is The Chief Cornerstone, and we're going to look over Acts 4, 5 through 22. We're not going to read it right away as we always do. I'm going to read it as we go because we had such a lengthy overview, and I have such a lengthy amount of scripture, plus some awesome scripture that I have to throw in there that just kind of just, it's like a sermon on steroids. So go with me me let's uh let's move on you can read it we're going to be in we're going to start in five but i'm not going to read it yet we have a new message for today but we're in the same situation the disciples are in jail the same as we had last week and that's what we're going to pick up with our new sermon today remember they had been arrested for preaching jesus and the crucifixion in verse two that we looked over last week look at verses five and six look what they say to us today and it came to pass on the next day that the rulers the elders and scribes as well as annas the high priest caiaphas now both of these were high both, both of these were jewish high priests but they were not both elected by the jews annas was elected by the romans to be the high priest of the jewish religion because they just didn't want to leave the religious rulings to just the jews and caiaphas was elected by the jews he would have been the one that was in the priestly line of aaron the one that the was elected by god to rule uh, but also, John and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. Verses 5 and 6. All these rulers of the Jewish religion were gathered together along with their family members in Jerusalem. Why were these religious leaders gathered together like this? Look at verse 7. And when they set them, that would be the disciples, Peter and John, in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? They had to question the apostles about how they did the miracle. Hey, where did you get the power to do that miracle? Hey, by what name did you do that miracle? Why were they doing this? They already knew about the miracle. They already had heard about it. They, I don't, they didn't see it, but I know they saw the lame man. And they were the same people walking into the temple every day that he was laid there at the gate every day. So why did they get them together? And why did they put them in front of him? And why did they question him? Well, it wasn't to find out more about the miracle, but why? Very simple, and I'll explain it to you. It's kind of a little, you know, you have to look for it here in Scripture, but it's very plain. They wanted to find out if they could convict them of some wrongdoing in what they did. And, and I'll show you this as we go. Making this gathering together more like a trial instead of just a friendly chat about what happens. Which, which means that they're really putting God's kids on trial here, just like they did Jesus Christ just a few months before this. Why do I believe this? Well, let's just look at the evidence in the scripture that shows us what I'm, what I'm saying here. They arrested them and put them in custody. Remember Acts 4.3. Then they bring them out together in front of a group of religious leaders who are questioning them of their activities with the layman, wanting to know by what name the miracle was done by. Then Peter says, if you skip down to verse 9 of this section, we'll study it, but just for the point here. If we this day are judged... For a good deed done to a helpless man. And, and now, 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 let me get this right here. Let, think about this. What's it called when a person or a people come together to question you, to judge you for something you've done after they've had you in jail? Well, think about it. Well, what do we call that today? I don't know about you, but, but I call that a trial. 
And this, absolutely, they were on trial here. So the religious leaders had the apostles arrested, put in jail because they were preaching in Jesus on the resurrection, not because of the miracle, remember. But now they had to find out by this trial if they had some reason to put them to death, similar to Christ. For some of the people in this same group of people looking at Peter and John were those same ones that had Jesus Christ arrested, that had a fake trial for Jesus and then called out to the people, right? Or called out to the people that say, hey, hey, crucify him, crucify him. Look at what Peter does in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. So what what did the disciples do in the face of this very intimidating trial and judgment situation when most would be scared? Peter, Peter, filled with God's Holy Spirit, boldly, and in the face of his persecutors, begins preaching his third sermon. God sure did give him the gift of preaching, didn't he? But he also gave him the gift of boldness, too. Wow. First, he addresses his judges, as in both of his other two sermons, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. But then, after he addresses them, Peter doesn't just begin to answer their question as someone who is concerned about making their defense does. Instead, look what he says in verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Or in other words, he says, you know that there was a miracle done to this lame man, right? I mean, you know, they weren't blind. They saw the lame man standing right there. Yet you arrest us and you put us in jail. And now you put us on trial to judge us for this good deed done to a helpless man? I mean, are you kidding me? Are you, are you guys, is this a joke? Th- these religious leaders and their kin truly, to me, are worthless people, in my opinion. Why did, pe- why did Peter do this? See, see he, had, he, wanted to, he was concerned, more concerned about rebuking them and bringing them to the truth than he was actually about his defense. Most people who have been arrested at the time of their trial, as Peter and John are here, are a bit more gentle and timid in hopes that their judges will give them an easier sentence to let them off. But not Peter. Peter rebukes them soundly. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, I mean, really, what are are we here for? These guys should have been excited about this guy's healing. Instead, what do they do? They draw the disciples out and they question them? This is ridiculous. Peter was just bold, though, in the face of his persecutors and this garbage trial. And as I said, these religious leaders should have been celebrating the miracle done to the layman. Instead, they want to judge Peter and John for what they've done. Uh, Do you see why I call them worthless men? How could Peter have been so bold? Really, because he was not scared at all. These guys had the power of his life, or him and John's life and death, in their hands right then and there. How, How could he have been so bold? Well, there in Scripture, we just read that he was filled with God's Holy Spirit. You see, there's no weakness in God. If we're operating in God's power, then we shall not be fearful at all. Whenever we're fearful, we're getting outside of God. We're forgetting about God's promises. We're forgetting that God's got us. We're forgetting that everything works to the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We forget these things. But Peter here, he didn't forget these things. He's on fire with God's spirit full of him. He's not going to be afraid, and he's preaching and preaching and preaching. He knew, number two, that's another reason he was so bold. He and John had done no wrong. So they weren't guilty of breaking any physical or religious laws. They weren't guilty. So there was no way they could legally condemn them. But in that same note, Peter knew that their innocence didn't matter because both he and John had also seen what these same Jewish religious leaders did to their Lord Jesus, who was not guilty of breaking any religious or physical laws either. Yet the disciples saw the religious leaders unjustly condemn him and they put him to death. And so... Saying all that, you say, well, shouldn't that make Peter scared? No, because they had no fear. They knew these religious hypocrites were going to only do to them whatever God was going to allow them to do to them, and he wasn't, they weren't going to be scared of what they could do to them or, or, or any power that they had over them. They knew that their ultimate fate was in God's hands, not these religious leaders' hands. Number three reason why Peter was so bold. In light of all that I just said, he also, I'm sure, remembered Jesus' words. About what did, what did Jesus say? He said, after I die, there's certain things going to happen to you. Here's one of them, Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver, deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. This is one of the things that Jesus promised his disciples. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So Peter was not surprised at what was happening to him, or them rather. Rather, he probably expected it. 
And rather, really, as he expected it, he might have been even thinking, all right, Lord, it's time to go home. They're going to kill us just like they did you. I'm ready to go. And Peter was ready. So he preached at this trial with boldness, reckless abandon, and without shame, for he had nothing to fear and nothing to lose. But there is one more reason. Peter kind of had a fourth reason, and I, I think there may have been a fourth reason. It had to do with verse 21. We'll go there. I'm going to teach it in a little bit, just go over quickly. But I'm just going to hit on it real quick here, for it kind of pertains to why the, Peter might not have been scared. Look at verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. The religious leaders here decided to hold this apostle's trial during the day and obviously in the temple where the miracle had been done. So the people, being a new day, must have come back to the temple to celebrate what God had done through Peter and John the day before. I mean, that's a common thing we do, right? If there's a miracle, we don't just talk about it one time. We revisit it and we revisit it and we revisit it and they, these guys actually saw it. So they probably came, well, they not probably, they were back in the temple as, 20, as verse 21 told us because they were all all around watching these religious leaders kind of question the disciples for what they were doing. And because of the masses of people that were all around the disciples, the religious leaders couldn't find them guilty, even though I believe verse 21 tells us that they oh so wanted to so bad. Since same as Jesus Christ in his ministry though, right? Many times what happened? Jesus did an awesome miracle and he, boom, something happened and the religious leaders came and they were like, why did you do that? You can't do that. <coughs> and then the scripture would say, oh, but they did nothing because, oh, the people, the masses of people, they were afraid of the people. You see, evil people always want to operate in the shadows or in the darkness. And that, that's where these guys were. They were in the darkness and in the evil shadows because there's, they would have killed these disciples because they were preaching Jesus in the rest resurrection. And remember, remember how they finally stomped Jesus out, right? Jesus and his disciples go to the garden at Gethsemane. It's at night. Judas was the betrayer. They, they know it's at night. They know he's only going to be alone with the 12 disciples or 11 disciples minus Judas because Judas was the betrayer. And what do they do? They come late at night where they know the masses aren't going to be around. They know the, then they know there's no, probably no miracles. Nobody's going to be gathering around them. And then they arrest them and then they capture them and then they take them away to the fake trial. And you know the rest of the story. But how did they eventually get Jesus? In the most cowardly way that they possibly could. They could, if they were bold and they were really righteous, they would have had nothing to fear. They would have come in the daylight, right in the middle of the righteousness, and said, you're guilty because of this, 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 and that, and we're taking you away, and they would have put them before, and that was it. But they didn't do it that way. They were cowards. So now, after Peter's rebuked them, he boldly answers their original question. Look what he says, verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by this, by him, this man stands before you whole. He tells them boldly, hey, now I'm going to answer you. Now I'm done rebuking you for the first time. And boom, it's by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But he doesn't just tell them this boldly, he does it with another rebuke. Look what he does. He points out their sin again of murdering Jesus Christ. Can't have a good sermon without preaching on sin even more than one time, right? I, I like that. I feel the same way. Then what does he do? Preaches on their sin, but he gives them the good news of the gospel. Hey, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Peter was big on the gospel. Reminds me of what Joseph said to his brothers after he put them through the ringer in Egypt, right? Remember, Joseph's brothers sell him, and he sells him to the Ishmaelites, and they take him to Egypt as a slave. And then when he kind of comes back, and you know his brothers and him meet up and everything, he kind of puts him through this rigmarole of kind of like getting back at him a little bit, you know, because he got his flesh get in there a little bit. And then after that, they kind of meet, and he kind of reveals himself, and then they're real sorry, and oh, we're sorry for you. And he says this, Genesis fifty twenty, but as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Why? In order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And this is what happened here with Jesus, right? We know that that's what happened with Jesus. The evil religious leaders meant it for evil for Jesus, but God meant it for good. For had they not done that, had they not crucified Christ, had they not arrested him and crucified him and killed him, then we would have no salvation 
today. So what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, no parallel there, right? Joseph was the total typology or picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Even his Hebrew name, in case you didn't know, Yahweh. That's the original name of Joseph. That's the Hebrew name of Joseph. And guess what? That's the Hebrew name of Christ Jesus as well. Same in Hebrew. Look at what Peter says next. Look at verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He quotes almost exactly 99.99999, almost exactly a prophecy from Psalm 118.22, coming from the section of verses 21 through 26, in which the psalmist is speaking about the coming Christ, along with some details about him. Here's Psalm 22. Listen to the similarities and see if you can pick out the one that doesn't match. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Did you see the difference? The Psalm 118 uses the builders. Peter says, you builders. I will discuss this shortly. So the stone is the Christ. Speaking of the pictures or parallels of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament, kind of like the Joshua deal, which parallels the rock. And who is the rock? Who is the stone? Well, Moses, when he was in the wilderness with the children of Israel, struck the rock. And 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that that rock was Christ. Okay, so that's the stone, stone, rock. The stone or the rock was Christ. In Psalm 118, 22, the psalmist says that the Christ was rejected by the builders. Now, Psalm 118, 22 says of those that rejected the Christ, the builders, yet Peter says that those rejected the Christ are you builders. Why did he change the psalm? Why did he change it? Look at the change. Because the builders that the psalmist was speaking of were those whom were those whom were the religious heads or leaders of the Jewish faith, those that had built the Jewish religion the way it was of the day, right? And that's who the psalmist is seeing in the prophecy. Maybe it was David, maybe it was Asaph, I'm not really sure. But that's who the psalmist was seeing. Well, Peter, he's not preaching about something that's to come. He's preaching to the people that actually did the crime. The actual builders that actually rejected the stone. Here we see another huge rebuke of these religious leaders that held Peter and John's fate of death or release in their hands. Wasn't Peter just so bold? He said, hey, you guys, he tells them twice in the same sermon, you guys killed the rock. You guys are guilty of his death. You got, you got us on trial, yet you're the one that killed the Lord of glory? Well, who should be on trial here? Really, kind of Peter switches the trial, doesn't he? He kind of he takes the burden off of them, and he kind of looks back at them, and he says, why are you looking at us? We didn't do anything wrong, but you, 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 you guys are the one that killed the Messiah. Don't look at us. And Peter, not fearing them at all, wanted them to know that they were those builders from that prophecy that rejected the stone or rock of Christ, also wanting to point them to that rock, though, you see. Peter's rebuke wasn't just a, a rebuke because he hated them. Peter's rebuke was to point them to the scriptures and to say, hey, look at the Christ, look at the rock. Yeah, he's, yeah, I know you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Because why? Peter didn't hate them. Peter wanted them to come to repentance. These guys needed to be saved just like anybody else. They thought they were right with God, but they really weren't. They were deceived. And lastly, in this verse, Peter tells them the only bit of good news that came from their rejecting the stone, a rock of Christ, that because they did, he became the chief cornerstone. How did he do this? How did Christ become the chief cornerstone? I mean, wasn't he the chief cornerstone from the foundations of the world? Notice it says that he became the chief cornerstone, right? Uh, well, that's because he had to become the chief cornerstone. He wasn't, God was never made, but Jesus Christ was God, but not God Almighty. He was part of God, and that's the Trinity, the confusing thing of the Trinity, but he was not the chief cornerstone. So he had to do this by his victory over sin and death through the resurrection from the dead on the third day. And because he did this great thing, this great, you know, he, he put himself out there. And he allowed himself, all these things to happen to him, then, that he was rejected by men. God, after he was rejected, gave him the honor of becoming the chief cornerstone. Look, what is the chief cornerstone? Because, I mean, that is the title of the message today, the chief cornerstone. And this is where I'm going to, this is going to be the, the biggest section of the whole scripture here, talking about the chief cornerstone. Because it's, it's so valuable. It's such an awesome, I mean, you know, when you pray to Jesus, you can actually call him the chief cornerstone. Because that's one of his names in scriptures. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? You can call him the rock. You can call him the prince of life. You can call him Jesus the Christ. You can call him the lamb of God. You can call him I am. But you can call him 
the chief cornerstone too. What is the chief cornerstone? It is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. Important since, listen, all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire, every stone placed in the whole thing and the entire structure itself. And Jesus became this chief cornerstone. What did he become chief cornerstone of? Let me say, well, that's all well and good, Pastor Ed, but what did he become chief cornerstone of? I mean, you know, I got that. Yeah, he's the first one placed. Well, let's go to some scripture. Colossians 1, 17 and 18. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is, listen, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Not that he's born, but he was the first one resurrected after he died. He was the first one to attain of the resurrection that we're going to be partaking of if we continue to the end. That in all things, Paul says, he may have the preeminence. Look at another one. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. So he is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the rock of the church. Listen to Hebrews. Paul again in verses 5 through 8. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Listen, you have made him a little lower than the angels. So that was his death. That was his being crucified. That was his abasement. Listen, you have crowned him with the glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Beings that he had to do that, Jesus wasn't that way in the beginning, right? When he was with God in the beginning. He was God, but yet he wasn't God Almighty, and God Almighty was the ruler and reigner over everything. But because of what Christ did, Christ became the chief cornerstone. Christ, as we read here, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the works of your hands. God put Jesus Christ now over the works of his hands and all things in subjection under his feet. Look at what Paul says in two, uh, uh, Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, that's his abasement. That's where he was. He came to earth and he was brought low and he was murdered and he was abased and he was killed. Therefore, listen to what Paul says, verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. So because of his death, he was highly exalted and made the chief cornerstone and given him the name. Notice he didn't have the name. You can't be given something and if you already have it and given him the name which is above every name. Jesus Christ earned that name above all names because he laid down his life and then resurrected again to defeat death. Right, And that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He became the chief cornerstone of the new covenant and he became the chief cornerstone of the Christian church. What an honor, right? That is such an honor. And all of these honors were bestowed upon Christ, including becoming the chief cornerstone because he took the sin bullet for all humanity by giving his life freely on the cross for our sins. Wow. You know, that's something that Jesus had to overcome, right? Satan tempted him. The world tempted him. Sin tempted him. But Jesus had to overcome all those things in order to go to the cross. Remember, he was even having second thoughts. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He prayed, oh Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to really go through this, Lord. God Almighty, please, let me out of this. Is there another way? And then, of course, we know the story. He submitted to God because he said, nevertheless, not my will, but let your will be done. And here, the greatest and most awesome picture of what happened to Christ when he did that that day on Calvary. Uh, preluding into our next verse, but looking at the heavenly magnitude of what Christ Jesus, of when he became the chief cornerstone. Look with me to Revelation chapter 
5. Look at what was happening in heaven at the moment Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, becoming the chief cornerstone and afterwards. Revelation chapter 5. Look at what John says. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back. Now, now I've heard a preacher say, and I won't argue with this, that this was like the title deed to the earth. Remember, and he used that, remember in the beginning when God said he gave the dominion to man? Well, then man kind of forfeited their dominion over to Satan when they kind of listened to Satan and they rejected God. So in a sense, this one preacher I listened to said that this scroll was like the title deed of the earth. Satan ruled the earth, the earth belonged to Satan, but Christ, by his victory over on the cross and, and after death, kind of kind of took that title deed back from the devil and kind of won the earth back. But I, I you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord on that. That's just a definite, that's definitely a good idea. Uh, so he says here, look here. And I saw on the right hand who sat on the throne a scroll written on the inside and the back, seal with the seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. Now, if you think about it, the angel said that, but God was holding the scroll. God Almighty was holding the scroll. Yet the angel said, nobody in heaven or earth is able to open that scroll. And God had the scroll. That means to tell me God Almighty couldn't even open the scroll because guess what? God Almighty, the God the Father, didn't come and give his life on the cross to pay for the earth again. So look at what John says. So I, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, listen, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and on the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's what was happening. Christ died. There it is. He's, he, because he died, because he paid for our sins, he was worthy to open the scroll. This is what happened. This is Christ becoming the chief cornerstone, right? Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That was God who had it. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, this is him becoming the chief cornerstone here. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. Wow. That was Jesus Christ conquering sin and death, dying and then conquering sin and death, becoming the chief cornerstone. And this is what we read in the epistles by Paul, that he God clothed him, made him worthy, right? Look at what happened. They, everybody was falling down and, and worship him. And then he says, look this, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, receive. That means he didn't have it to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and all those things he gained because he laid down his life and then he picked it up again for God gave him the power to do that. And every creature that was in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the, 12, the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Literally, all of heaven went crazy when he laid down his life on the cross. Then he conquered death and he conquered sin by his resurrection and he became the chief cornerstone of all creation, of all the church, of all, of all the new covenant. He became the chief cornerstone cornerstone and all creation all heaven worshipped him and they fell down for you are worthy and that's Jesus Christ the Lord of glory the chief cornerstone Woo! now after saying all that preluding into the next verse listen to this 
prelude, and this is so glorious. This, this is another thing that Jesus Christ earned, by the way, by laying down his life and resurrecting again. Look at verse 12. Look at what Peter says. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which by which we must be saved. I was reading this the other day, and as I was reading it in the sermon, I'm not going to lie to you, I just started to weep. I just started to weep. He, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus Christ earned that that title, that ability to do that because he became the chief cornerstone, because he laid down his life on the cross. How awesome and powerful is this? No, there is nothing on earth that is as powerful as Jesus Christ becoming the chief cornerstone and there being no other name given among men by which we must be saved. This is so, so powerful. Woo! So, so powerful. What does this mean for other so-called religions? Pastor Ed, what about Buddhism? Or or what about Islam? Or or what about Hinduism? Or what about Taoism? Or Shintoism? Or or, or the Sikhs? Well, what what does Peter say here? Which I affirm. What, What does Peter say? There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter just said the most dogmatic narrow-minded statement that's ever been said in all, ever by any other, anybody, ever. Nobody's getting to heaven. Nobody's saved unless they go through Jesus Christ. Peter just said what Jesus did in John 14, 6. He says, I, not not, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not not so-and-so, whoever, not Joseph Smith, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved by the name of Jesus Christ. But here he says it, when saying it, Peter, think about this, could have lost his life for saying this. These religious leaders are some of of the very ones, if not the exact ones, that actually incited the crowd asking Pilate for the death of Christ Jesus. And they hated him so much. Think about this, even go above that. And here we are with the disciple Peter and John, roughly within the first few months after Christ's death and resurrection. And these religious Religious leaders' hatred for him was still so evident. Remember, they arrested the disciples because they preached Jesus in the resurrections. They still hated Jesus, right? And I'm sure they hated the religion that he left behind. <laughs> Absolutely sure. And, and so what is Peter? Well, P- Peter's only just a little thing like one of the biggest heads of the whole religion that Jesus Christ left, right? And what is he doing? He's preaching to the people, the very people that killed Jesus and could have killed him in John 2. And he's preaching Jesus. Jesus as the Christ, which is the Messiah of the whole world, as the chief cornerstone, prophesied in the Psalms, they were the murderers and the only way to heaven. In the face of those that could have killed them. In the face of those who could have crucified them just like they did Jesus. And in case you didn't realize what he just did, yeah, I mean, we know, yeah, yeah, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And yeah, that's what Peter told them. But what else did he do here? He just told these religious leaders by saying all that he did that they didn't have the way to heaven. Wow. Right? Because he said there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. That means even by you guys. Hey, and, and even by your religious teachings. No. You don't have the way to heaven. Peter said to the very people that people came to them to find out how to get to heaven. Peter said, you're going to hell. You're going to hell, guys. Did you know that? You don't have the way to heaven. This guy, Jesus, whom I preach, he's got the only way to heaven. Peter had some guts, didn't he? He had some big Holy Spirit-filled guts, I'd say. But Peter had to tell them the truth because he loved them so. He wanted them to be saved from their sins. And as he just said, there's nobody going to heaven outside of Jesus. If you're not in Jesus, you're not, you're not going to heaven. And they had to repent and believe this, that Jesus was their Savior to be saved just like I would. 
Repentance is just simply having a change of heart towards God and changing the way you think about the Savior, God's Savior, Jesus Christ. Changing your mind towards Christ as just a head belief or, or, or just a prophet or just a man that you killed and making a heart commitment to Him and giving Jesus your Messiah, the Messiah, acknowledging Him as the Messiah and then laying your life down before Him, giving Him the Lordship of your life. Do they relent? Do they repent? Do they have this change of heart that God so wanted them to have toward Jesus Christ? I'm just going to read over, just highlight different things out of 13 through 22, and then I'm going to close. Look at this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Woo, that's powerful. That means that they didn't go to seminary. They didn't sit underneath religious teachers and learn religious ways. That means that they got everything they got from Jesus because they were with him. And this is awesome. They realized this. This is powerful, right? They were like, wow, they could see this. That's something that God gave them because they couldn't see that unless God showed it to them because this was a spiritual thing, right? So they saw that. That's a good thing. We're getting there, right? Look at 14. And seeing the men who had been healed standing with them, this is still the religious leaders, they could say nothing against it. So what happened? God made them speechless through Peter's mouth. <laughs> they couldn't even answer. They were, they were, they were like, oh, but uh, he's, he's healed. Jesus. Uh, uh, they couldn't say a thing. They were speechless, which is positive. God shut their mouths. That's really good. Let's see. Maybe maybe they're coming to repentance. 15. But when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred amongst themselves, which is also a good thing. Private meeting. Hey, let's clear our minds. Let's get the crowds out of here. Let's get the disciples out of here. Let's talk about everything we've heard, guys. I mean, because this is some pretty powerful stuff. I mean, nobody can ignore this, right? I mean, this guy's standing here healed, and this guy's preaching Jesus Christ, and we know he's got the boldness, and there's no way he wasn't educated. How does he know all this stuff? He was just with Jesus. Wow. Look. Look what they say, verse 16 saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. What he just said is, hey, the miracle they did was spread throughout a whole land. Everybody knows about it. What, what, what can we do? We're, we're, we're helpless. We, we can't do anything. I mean, they admit the miracle. That's good. And, and they don't deny it. And that's really good. But are they moving toward repentance? Look at verses 17 and 18. But so that it spreads no further among the people, they say. Ooh, that's bad. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no more in this name. Wow, and speak no more to man about this name. That's not good. That They knew all this stuff. They saw all these things. They witnessed this power. They saw the power in Peter. And now they want him to stop talking about Jesus Christ, the very name in which they did this miracle. Wow. I mean, they they were really wanting to hold back God's power on the earth. So 18, so they, they called them and they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They don't repent. They don't repent. They don't repent. Their hearts just grew harder. Do Peter and John buckle? Do they, oh, okay, well, you know, since you're the leaders and, you know, the Bible says we're supposed to submit to the authority of man. Eh. But Peter and John answered them and said, verse 19, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We're not going to obey you. I'm sorry. We can't do what you say. Uh, you know, we know that God says to be obedient to the rulers of the earth, but you know, now, not when it comes in, in contrast to what God has purposely, per- powerfully told us to do. God told us to go share the gospel, to do these miracles to all the people, and we got to do what God's told us to do. So you guys got to do what you got to do, and I got to do what I got to do. We got to do what we got to do. But you know, we're not going to stop... Sorry about your luck. But then when they had further threatened them, 21, they let them go. Listen, 
finding no way to punish them. Oh, they so wanted to. Oh, they so wanted to. They just told them they didn't have the way to heaven and they just told them, it's in Jesus' name and we're not going to listen to you in your face because of the people they couldn't. So they all glorified God because all the people glorified God for what had been done. Verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on which the miracle of healing had been performed. Think about it. The miracle was so powerful. Not only was this man just a man, he was 40 years old. He had gone his whole whole life without ever walking and this miracle was so so powerful so they don't turn to jesus these religious leaders don't they don't surrender themselves to him as the christ as god would hoping that they would do so sad so sad so sad and instead of repenting they harden their hearts toward god and christ and they turn away more and more so these evil-hearted religious leaders who hated christ arrested the apostles brought them to a trial to judge them so as to find some evidence of guilt against them so that they could put them to death. Oh, as I said, they so wanted to. Remember verse 21. And had the masses not been there, these evil-hearted religious leaders would have put the apostles to death the same way they did their Lord. Uh, instead, they only get to ask, think about this, they only, in, in all their big, powerful interrogation, I think this is kind of funny, they only get to ask the disciples one question. One question, and what happens after they ask the one question? Peter totally disregards their ability to judge them and find them guilty and put them to death, and he preaches his third sermon to them, and in my opinion, he brings the heat. Peter brought some mighty heat here, right? In his message, he rebuked them a couple times. He gave the credit for the healing to Jesus Christ, the one they hated. He gave them the gospel, you know. He told them of and rebuked them because of their sin, murdering the stone, rock of Christ. He told them that Jesus Christ became the chief cornerstone, which was super powerful because they knew what that meant. Then he told them that salvation only came through Christ and that they didn't have the way to eternal life. Hence, preaching to them... You don't have the right way. What did he really say? Jesus Christ is the right way. That's repentance. He preached repentance to them again. Hey, there's only salvation in Jesus Christ. You guys don't have it. If you guys want to go to heaven, guess what you need to do? Repent! He might as he didn't say the word, but he sure implied it. And so, and, and as they did not repent and turn to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, God was saddened. They don't repent. Instead, they harden their hearts toward God. They t- take a huge step away from God into hell and away from God's will for them. Uh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven is so appropriate for this section. It reminds me exactly of what happened here. Jesus is standing over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. I have a desire to heal you and save you, my children, Israel, but you are not willing. I have been calling to you. I've been reaching out to you. I've been wanting you to come to me, but you will not come. Ladies and gentlemen, in this church today, and listen to me all over the world, Jesus Christ is the Christ, and he is the chief cornerstone, which means that he is the only way to heaven. For as Peter says here, and I confirm, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He's the only way to heaven, and it's only through him by which we are saved. Now, here's a little bit of something to think about. Knowing all this is well and good, right? I mean, we, we can acknowledge all this. Hey, Jesus Christ the Lord, there's no way to heaven but through him. But just knowing this info about him is not enough to help us access this salvation through Jesus Christ alone, right? Just because we know these things about Jesus Christ doesn't make us saved, right? Because, in case you didn't know, just because Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and we must be saved by him doesn't make anyone or everyone or anyone, period, they all saved. The Bible says so. Bible says salvation really is a partnership between us and God. It really is. As is any partnership with anybody, both parties bring something to the table. And I'm not talking about works. So what are we supposed to bring to the table for God? Or in other words, in light of Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven, what does God want for us so that we may be saved? 
I mean, hey, I know Jesus Christ. Oh, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. But does that make me eternally, does that make me born again? Does that make me saved? The Bible, Bible says no. And as I said, it can't be works because the Bible says that no work can save us. And God brings the salvation. I mean, we, we cannot save ourselves. We are incapable of saving our own souls. We, we, I can barely get to work every day and I, I, I save my eternal soul. I'm a physical being. I can't save my soul. No one can. So, so now, thinking about those things, what does God want from you? Do you know? Do you know? A huge majority of people in this world claim to know, but when I've asked great numbers, and I mean great numbers, this question, what does God want from you? They can't tell me. Uh, and they certainly can't tell me what it means from the Bible. They have a lot of I thinks. Well, you know what that means when you have a lot of I thinks. You know a lot of nothing because you don't really know anything, neither do I, because we don't know infinite amounts of things. We know minuscule amounts of things. So, what does God want from you? Do you know? Well, you ready? Here's what God wants from you. It's not a work. You see, one time Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what we call it. That's what the Bible calls it. And he was with his three most closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And as they were up there kind of hanging out, all of a sudden this, this power filled the whole sky and this darkness came across the land. And here's God's voice, boom, booming from heaven. It's so powerful, the disciples fall down on their faces and they just can't even stand. They're scared. They, they were kind of acting like dead men, kind of like the, the you know, Roman soldiers did when Jesus Christ resurrected, right? And God says from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then he says it. Then he says what God wants from you. Hear him. Hear him. What? What do you you mean, hear Jesus Christ? How does that mean salvation? How does that mean, Pastor Ed, I don't get it. Well, here's what hear him means. It means repenting of your own thinking, of your own ways, of following your own self, of following the devil, and turning to Christ and deciding to hear him, hear his teachings, listen to him. Do what he says. Not just know of him as some entity, as some, oh, some magical mystic person in the sky. No, no, no. Hear him. Turn away from you and listen to my son. You see, because right there, God took the authority which he had, which he had ruled over mankind since the beginning of creation, and he passed it to Jesus Christ, showing us, hey, He's the one now that I want you to listen to. He's the one that there's salvation. And for, as Peter says here, there's no other name in heaven or among men by which anyone is saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. And if you have repented and you've turned to him and you've begun to hear him, which really you've made a decision to start obeying him. You've made a decision to stop living your life for you and start hearing Jesus, taking his words as counsel for your life and living by his words surrendered unto him. If you've done that, the Bible says that you should be born again. What does born again mean? What does born again? I got baptized in water. What does born again mean? Born again means that you've become a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. You're not the same person with just a different religion. You're a new person with a new relationship with God. What does this look like? A new heart, a new, a new, a new person means that you have a new heart surrendered towards God. Instantly, with that means that sin is going to decrease in your life. For God is holy, and the Bible says when you become born again, God starts living inside of you, and therefore, if God's living in you and he hates sin, you are going to start to hate sin. And so, therefore, you're going to start to practice sin or not practice sin, or excuse me, you're going to start to practice sin less or not commit sin hardly at all, period, the end is what's going to happen. You're going to start to be more holy. You're going to start to do things more of a holy way. 
You're going to start to read God's Word more often. You're going to start to want to talk to God and pray to God all the time. And your focus is not going to be on your earthly life always. It's going to be on obeying what Jesus Christ said to do. You're going to stop swearing and speaking all kinds of profane name language, and you're going to stop using God's name in vain. Why? Because God's living in you now. You're going to have a whole new different way of speaking. When I first came to be born again, I would, I would, I, I, I tried to talk the same way as I was before, and then you know what? I just couldn't. It was like rocks in my mouth. I just could, I could not speak. I was just like, oh, no, those words are filthy. I finally saw those words for what they were. I could not swear. It bothered me to use a profane word. Isn't that awesome? Your choice, here's another thing. Your choice of what you watch on TV and your music, they're going to change too. You're going to stop wanting to watch all those things with God's name in vain and swearing all kinds of crazy and watching all that practical pornography that we got on the TV today because even even the shows that they show now on regular TV, they're pornographic 50 years ago. They show ladies on TVs with panties and bra. That was pornographic back 50 years ago. And to me, it's still pornographic now. I can't stand to watch that garbage now. That bothers me. I I can't. Your whole TV watching, your whole music listening should change if you're born again. How you treat others, how you talk to others, how you look at others should all change. Now you should look at others in a loving way. Now you should treat others with kindness, wanting to help them, wanting to be generous. This is what some of the things that happen when you become born again. God and Jesus Christ and the Bible and Jesus Christ's teachings and being involved in one of God's true churches shouldn't just be a hobby. They wouldn't, they won't just be hobbies really, but they'll be the focus of your life. They'll be where your life is going. You will not want the way you lived before, but you will want a new way to live now. Do these things, and I challenge you now, do these things and ways describe you, or do you just have a head belief of Jesus Christ? And, you know, do you just live in your old ways and you do everything you just desire to do and swearing doesn't bother you and wicked, wicked, wicked TV doesn't bother you and, and breaking the law doesn't bother you and I ah, don't really have to worry about reading God's word. Hey, I, I, I know Jesus, you know. Does, does that sound like you? Well, but, but you may go to church though, right? You may go to church, but you know, yeah, I got to go to the clubs too. You know, it's okay. I get drunk once in a while. It's all right. You know, hey, even Jesus drank. Well, let me tell you, if that's you, And those other ways didn't describe you. The Bible says that you're not saved. The Bible says that you're not born again. For Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, they are, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. And yes, the old nature is passing away. It's dying away daily, which mine is. My old ways are dying away every single day. Every day God shows me something new. Oh, wait, oh, I did the, oh, that's sin too. Oh, I didn't, oh, I'm sorry, God. I didn't even know that was sin. Oh, okay. Read his word. Oh, wow. I, I, oh, I did that the other day. Oh, my goodness gracious. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to do that. Old ways are passing away. Behold, all things have become new. A new heart condition. A new type, a different type, a a non-sin driven type of person. Sin will not drive you anymore. If you're walking with God and you have a, a humble heart before God and you are surrendered to God and you are really born again, then you will be a non sin driven person. Sin will bother the heck out of you. If that's not you today and you're not this new creature in Christ Jesus, you are not born again and you are not saved and you will not go to heaven when you die. But God longs for you to repent. God longs for you to come to him. Oh, oh, people, oh, people, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, come to me. I long, I long to gather a will for you to gather you into my, into my arms, but you are not willing. Would you be willing today? Because that's what God wants. He wants you to turn to him. Not stay the same way. Not continue on to the grave and to death and hell. He wants you to repent. He wants you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He wants you to realize that you're not right with Him and turn to Him so that He can make you born again. Because God gives the Spirit without measure, not us. And God is the one that makes us born again. So will you?
And if you haven't, would you please? And would you decide today to turn to Christ and make a relationship with Jesus and following and serving Him according to the Bible and not your own ways? Would you decide to make those ways everything in your life and turn to Him today? God's waiting for you, and He loves you so much. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love. Thank you so much for your just your powerful, powerful, powerful love and how you, you just gave us, you did everything, Lord, to make possible our salvation. Lord, all we need to do now, Lord, is hear you. Is, Lord, choose our free will that you gave us from the beginning of all creation, that you said, hey, choose this day whom you'll serve. And, Lord, if we'll just use our free will, Lord God, and, and we'll acknowledge that you're right and we're wrong, because <laughs> that's really what it's all about. You are right and we are wrong. And we need you. And Lord, we don't just need you just for a get out of hell free card, Lord God. We need you for just to give us joy, Lord. There's just no joy in this world. There's no true happiness in this world, Lord. But you bring true joy. You bring true happiness. So God, please, for those that are out there that are listening to this message all over the world, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that you would help them, help them, help them, help them make the decision to start hearing you or really to make a decision to turn to you and obey you. Please, God, help them come to be born again. Or Lord, help them to come back to you, Lord God. As I know there's a possibility that some listening out there have were walking with you a long time ago, but now they would just say backslidden. But Lord, your word says that backslidden is, is really headed for hell, Lord. It's not, it's not, well, I'll just get less rewards in heaven, Lord. It's backslidden is headed for hell again. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would touch their hearts like you did the prodigal son, and they would turn back to you realizing that, hey, even being a slave to you is way better than being in this world. Please, dear God, help people turn right now. I ask these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.